0: Because it's 2020 and there's just all kinds of weird stuff happening all the time. It's episode 333 of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. I'm James Witham. The the reason I say that is, is that this week, you know that I like to feature interviews on the podcast every week, you know, with somebody, you know, from the world of comics or or movies or TV or something like that. Well, this week, I mean, it couldn't be more of a 2020 thing to happen. You know, last minute cancellation and it's just going to be me this week. So no guest on the show this week. I know that you're probably bummed. I know one of the reasons you love listening to the show is for the guests. So, you know, hey, I'm sorry. And I'll I'll, I'll make sure I've got, you know, the guests returning next week. But, you know, this is just one, kind of one of those things. It's just one of those years, right? You know, in a, in a world with the with the coronavirus and everything, things can just change at the last minute. And I here's me rolling with the punches Right now, So still got plenty of great stuff to talk about this week and we'll be reviewing a couple of very interesting comics going to be talking about once again movies being delayed or maybe not being delayed so we might have a little extra bit of nerd news this week maybe we'll extend some nerd news and talk about that since we have no guests this week but one of the first things I'm going to do is give you my spoiler filled review of Superman Man of Tomorrow from DC Animation and Warner Brothers Home Entertainment we'll kick things off with that next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Yeah, brother. This is Josh Segura, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. It's the dawn of a new era for DC Animation. Of course, after Justice League Apocalypse War, DC Animation... And Warner Brothers Home Entertainment moving on and casting and movies wise as well. So the first offering is Superman Man of Tomorrow, which is available on digital now and Blu-ray, DVD, 4K and everything like that. So since it's already out and it's been out for several days now, I thought I'd go ahead and give a spoiler filled review this time of Superman Man of Tomorrow. And basically this is not necessarily an origin story. Of Clark Kent, it's more of the origin story of. I mean, we do get to see a younger Clark Kent in this movie, but that's f- more for a callback later on in the movie than anything else about how he feels about aliens and how he felt like he sort of, you know, didn't belong and would never be accepted in this world at the very beginning of the movie. So that that was more for a callback. But what we what we're basically getting is we're getting a grown up Clark Kent who is an intern. ...at the Daily Planet, and it's his very, very early days as almost even pre-Superman, because we see him as he's, he's just the flying man in Metropolis, right, doing his thing for the longest time. And then, of course, you know, Ma Kent sews up the suit for him, and and he ends up becoming Superman. But I don't want to go through, like, every little beat of this movie. I will say there are some things I liked about it. There are some things that I didn't like about it. So let's start off with some of the stuff that I liked about it. One of the things I really liked was that we saw a Superman that we don't normally get to see and that's a Superman that makes mistakes, not just in combat, but the way he approaches things. You know, how he sort of gets gets down on himself a little bit more because these again this is his very early stages of being Superman. We're not seeing as confident of a Superman as we're used to seeing and sometimes a little bit maybe we, we either see him as not confident at all or a couple times maybe even a little bit too confident right because why wouldn't he think he's indestructible because he's never faced any, off with anything that's even close to him clearly so and and you know pa kent tries to tell him like look kiddo you are in metropolis now and there's plenty of people that would love to get their hands on you and well he certainly faced some threats that he didn't expect but again that's gonna happen with almost any early superhero right that's that's one of one of those things that's just gonna happen and speaking of those threats I mean sure we had Lex Luthor in this movie right so and, and you know almost a little bit of an origin for their let's just call it disagreements let's just let's just call it that for now but we you you know the very early part of their adversarial relationship relationship which actually started out as what appeared to be a partnership and that was the other thing we got from the Superman was a little bit of naivety as well he you know he was maybe a little bit too trusting at times too but I do love the fact that in this movie we went a little bit unconventional for the villains you went with parasite of course was voiced by Brett Dalton and we also had, we, we also had Lobo, well, even though, you know, Lobo kind of plays whatever sides get the most money. So you, you can call Lobo a villain if you want. He certainly starts, start out, starts out as an adversary for Superman in the early going. So I like that we went a little bit unconventional there with that. I mean, it would have been easy to just have Lex Luthor, right, especially when you're doing an origin-type situation. It would have been very easy to... To, you know, maybe go with Brainiac or something like that. Even though they've already gone that route, you you, you still could have, you know, in theory, done that, right? And, you know, I and the, you you could have maybe done Mister Mixes Spitalik, and that that would have been cool too. But I like that you go Parasite and Lobo, and they certainly build Parasite up to be this very very powerful, almost unstoppable villain, and. What's funny is is that in, in towards the end, and again, big spoiler here, but Parasite ends up being the one that saves the day, and it's because Superman appeals to the human that's still in him. So, you know, no fists had to fly to kind of take down the bad guy in this one. And again, an unconventional route for going about that. Maybe you liked that. Maybe you didn't. But you got to admit one thing. It was unconventional, and it was something that you don't see in movies very often, whether it be animated or otherwise, you know, you're talking the villain down and that doesn't always happen. And, and it's, and it just reminds you of that optimism that Superman usually has. He's, you know, always looking for the better way, always looking for that bright side, right? He is that shining light that the world needs, right? So that was one of the very early examples of, of that and, you know, what he will eventually become for the world. And I thought that that was a very, very important moment in this movie. I also thought Darren Chris, Chris, by the way, did a great job as both Clark Kent and Superman. I thought that that was a very good casting. When I first saw it, I was like, yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. And actually the voice cast across the board was very, very good. But at the same time, there's some stuff that I also didn't like about this movie, and one of the things was just the writing in general. And Tim Sheridan wrote this one, and I don't know. It just seemed very campy at times. It seemed like things, you know, didn't quite have as good of a linear flow as I would have liked it to have. It seemed like there were some moments that should have probably been big moments, like like Martian Manhunter showing up. At the you know towards the end there you thought he was dead and he's not that probably should have resonated more than it actually did, but and again you you didn't really build up that friendship between Clark and Jean you, you know he just kind of shows up and he's this mysterious figure and yeah he helps him find out where he came from but you know it's I wouldn't have necessarily called them fast friends so even the death didn't make as much of an impact unless you're just a Martian Manhunter fan. I was more upset that I thought that they were kind of wasting the character in the beginning of the movie more than anything else. So, and I thought the way that they brought him in was a little bit weird too. I just don't know that Martian Manhunter was used in the proper way, but again, nothing wrong with the way the character was voiced. The other character that I thought was written very poorly, quite frankly, was Lois Lane. And I realized again, very early Lois Lane, right? So this was a very different Lois Lane that we're used to, but there was no, to me, there was no, and my, again, just my opinion, there was no strength to this character. You know, I thought it was the only really interesting thing was that, you know, she ended up getting her gig at the Daily Planet because of some Luther, Luther Fellowship for, for the paper or something like that, so Luther was almost her gateway in. And at first you think you're going to get that strong Lois Lane, right? Because she drops that recording, that bombshell that kind of takes down Lex. And you're like, yeah, here's the Lois I know. And then as the movie goes along, she seems, you know, sometimes she she seems inept. Obviously she's trying to, to get the story right. And it's very much a do-anything-to-get-the-story story kind of Lois Lane, but she also seems like a, a bit weaselish, right? A bit unethical at times, right? And maybe I read it wrong. Maybe I just got it wrong. I didn't get that constantly strong female figure of Lois Lane that I've seen in other DC animated movies and in live action as well. I realized that again, we're getting an early Lois Lane here and maybe her youth causes her to be that way. But I never got that impression from Lois Lane at any point in her career in anything I've seen her in. You know, like, like when it looked like she was trying to steal the story from Clark, right, about Superman. And she's like, oh, well, I'll share the byline. And I'm like, that's not Lois Lane. If anything, she'd talk down to him and say that he wasn't, you know, worthy of doing the story. Almost in, in a certain way, right it's it's almost like she would she would kind of you know be a little bit more arrogant about it. instead, it came off as very weaselish and to me that's just not Lois Lane at all. So I thought that the Lois Lane character as far as the writing goes was a big misstep in this movie. I loved Zachary Quinto as Lex Luthor and again, I one of the things I actually did like is that we didn't focus a ton on Lex Luthor. We do get plenty of Lex, you know, towards the end. And that that was the twist that you saw coming, but you, you knew had to come eventually. When he just decides to be in it for himself, he's like, I'll take you both down and make you my slaves. That was a good one. I did, I did really like that. And it wasn't really a twist because you kind of knew, again, as a fan, that that's what was going to happen. But at the same time, it was a nice, you know, it was nice to get that moment. And I actually thought that that moment was presented very well. All in all, I think that there were some ups here, there were some downs here as well. There was a nice nod, not exactly, but a little bit of a nod to the Action Comics number 1 cover. I did like that. But I thought that some of the some of the lines were a bit corny in the movie and again, you can only, you know, deliver the lines that you're given right by the writers. I liked the animation style. I liked that they changed things up a little bit from what they would usually do for DC animated movies. You make it feel real. You make it feel fresh. So I did like how the movie was presented. And again, it was just, I thought the structure was a bit off. I thought that there were things that were rushed or not earned at times as well. And just a couple of the characters did not land for me writing wise. So I would say that I'm about... I'm a little bit more than 50/50 on Superman Man of Tomorrow. I did enjoy it. I I maybe gave it a 6 or 7 out of 10. I actually think that it did have some good moments, but when you have those high expectations from DC Animation that that were built up over the course of, you know, over a decade of great movies, you know, when something doesn't quite live up to those expectations even though it's the first offering, you know, I'm going to judge it maybe a little bit more harshly, and maybe I shouldn't, but at the same time, this is the bar you've set, and now this is what I expect. Although I still can't wait to see how things are going to be going for the next offering. And again, worth watching, especially if you're a Superman fan. You're going to get some good moments, but just be prepared to, in my opinion, not see characters as they probably should have been. That's going to do it for my spoiler-filled review of Superman Man of Tomorrow from Warner Brothers Home Entertainment. And DC Animation up next, since we have no guests this week, how about we jump right in to what we're reading? That's next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hey, this is writer Kyle Higgins, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Whether you're stopping by your local comic book shop or going the digital route, hey, however you're reading, it's time for what we're reading. And this week, yeah, there was a couple of very interesting titles that I jumped onto. And the first one was the first Ultraman offering from Marvel Comics. It's Rise of Ultraman number one, which is written by Kyle Higgins and Matt Groom, Francesco Mana on the art, and Espen on the colors, and then VC's Ariana Maher on the letters. And you know an Alex Ross cover when you see it, right? There's some backup stories in here as well that are that are kind of fun if you're especially if you're a big Ultraman fan, but the story actually—the main story—centers around a young cadet named Kiki Fuji, who is part of the United Science Patrol. Although, you know, that's kind of a cloak and dagger organization in the story. There's actually some redacted pieces in here too, which I thought made things kind of fun. But Kiki's kind of eager to find out all she can about this K Ray, what they do, you know, where they came from. But they kind of seem to be keeping her in the dark. But then here comes Captain. Marumatsu, who takes her into the field for the first time on a kaiju alert. Some spoilers coming up, by the way, for this book, in case you didn't notice that already. So she's off, And but, but a lot of this in the, is in the description for the book as well. So here's some spoilers coming up. Yeah, things don't go well with this first mission, really. And they actually get saved by Kiki's best friend, Shin. Now the interesting thing about their dynamic is that Kiki makes it in to the USP and Shin does not. And when you don't make it in, it's not like the driver's license test where you can wait a couple days and go take it again. You get your license. No, 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 no. You got to wait like three years before you can take this test again to to get into this place. And that's kind of a big deal. And it's kind of, you know, it's a a little bit of a sore spot and, and, you know, it affects their friendship. And, you know, just when they're starting to kind of mend fences here, here comes another alert. And this time Shin has to tag along cuz you know he's kind of her ride. And this is for a UFO. Well, guess what that UFO turns out to be? Right, you guessed it. It's Ultraman. So, they have no idea obviously who or what he is, but then here comes your 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 jerk of the day here, Marmatsu, who says, you know, you know, open fire. Let's shoot this thing down and kill it before it kills anybody else. Now, they, they have the reported UFO sighting from 1966, which you see earlier in the book. What we're kind of left with is a cliffhanger of an injured Ultraman and Shin possibly fighting for his life. That's one thing that we can't be sure of based on what we saw at the end of this book. I will say one thing for this. The art's stunning. I mean, just throughout, not just the cover. But just throughout the issue, the art is absolutely stunning in this book, no doubt about it. I mean, you want a visually striking book, and if you're an Ultraman fan and you're worried about that, put those fears to rest. I could tell you that right now. No question about it. This is an amazingly, amazingly drawn book across the board. Now, the characters actually could use a little bit more depth if I'm being honest, but you know, Cadet Fuji is very likable character. You've got captain Marumatsu, who's kind of the, the over the top version of, uh, of what would be a captain in this, in this certain sense, especially in a secret organization, things are a little bit over the top at times in the writing, but that's, it seems like that's definitely done on purpose, but I mean, he plays the douche role very, very well. So, I mean, I, I, I instantly didn't like the dude from like the first line In the book, so bravo! You you certainly succeeded in that. I mean, there's like I said, there was a few mini stories added in there with with other parts of the creative team as well. All in all, not a bad first offering. If you're a diehard Ultraman fan, you know there's a chance that that you might not love it. If this is your first foray into Ultraman, then quite frankly, it's a good jumping on point for if you're not really familiar. With the character, because there's some new characters that get in, introduced here as well. And that's not a bad thing either, by the way. The kaiju were very interesting. The whole concept. It's like Kiki is being kept in the dark, and so are we in a certain extent. So if you like that bit of mystery that is put into place here, then you're going to like this book. I want to give proper credit to the colorist, though. I, I actually i realized I missed part of the name. It's Espen grunge and grunting and, and I'm, I butchered that name and I certainly apologize for that, but Hey, nothing new for me. If you want to give me the correct pronunciation on Twitter or something, I'd be happy to, to get that. But this, this book, I will definitely keep reading this book. I'm, I'm very interested, not really, really throw it in the pull box just yet, but I'm certainly interested in where this is going. So pick this one up if you haven't already. And I know that the Umbrella Academy is still very, very popular on Netflix. So if you've been thinking about trying some Umbrella Academy comics, Dark Horse has one coming out here pretty soon called You Look Like Death, Tales from the Umbrella Academy, number one. Yeah, I know you know where this is going, but just stick with me on this here. This course from Dark Horse Comics. Jared Way and Sean Simon doing the writing here. INJ Culbard doing the art and the colors. Nate Picos of Blambot on the letters. And there's like a village that did this cover. Gabriel Baugh, J. Colbard, Leonardo Romero, and the great Jordi Belair. Now, again, from the title, you're probably going to tell that this story centers around Klaus. No spoilers here, by the way, because this book isn't out yet. Don't want to spoil it for you. Now, you know that Klaus can be a little erratic, right? Well, his erratic behavior might have actually finally caught up to him in a very interesting way. This part is in the description for the book on Dark Horse's website. So not a spoiler, maybe a minor one if you haven't seen it yet. So I will warn you about that. I just said no spoilers, but this is literally in the description. He gets kicked out of the Umbrella Academy Academy house. He's on his own and he's kind of broke. Could you imagine how that would go with Klaus, right? So he's headed to a place where, you know, he might actually be able to make that work and his eccentric behavior might actually either go unnoticed or work in his favor. And that is Hollywood. But that's not the only trip he wants to take. And you could take that for what it's worth. Okay. And and that's, that's what you call the, that's a tease for this, for this issue, by the way, he has no idea though, that he's also in danger, but he finds himself an interesting party companion that's also looking to get herself noticed. So it's almost like maybe a match made in heaven type of situation, or it could put him in more mortal danger. There's only, you know, only time we'll tell on that. Quite frankly, if you're a Seance fan, if you just love Klaus, if you love number four, yeah, you're going to love this book. There's no question about it. There's so much Klaus in here. You get some of the other, you know, brothers and sisters as well in this, but this is a lot of Klaus. and It's it's all the Klaus you can want and then some, quite frankly. There's also a couple of interesting stories at play here. In this, It's not just a here's the one thing to focus on type of story. It definitely keeps things interesting. The Art's really good. I would say pretty good. But the colors are really what makes things stand out from I and J Culbar doing a great job with these colors. And, I mean, when you've got Klaus as the lead on your book, you're going to need... Some great colors this book has that. I am going to throw this one in my poll box because I was highly entertained by Klaus's antics, if nothing else. I mean, if nothing else, you've certainly got that going on for you. And it's just a fun book. If you're already an Umbrella Academy fan, you're going to dig this one as well. That's going to do it for what we're reading up next. We're going to take a deep dive into some nerd news and maybe get a little fired up on a couple topics. I'm James Witham, and this is the Down and Nerdy Podcast. I'm Haley Mancini. And I'm Jake Goldman. And we are writers for the Powerpuff Girls. And you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Yeah. It's time for nerd news. And I actually struggled with which story to start with here. And I'm going to start with since DC Fandom Part 2 is coming up this weekend. Let's talk about the movie that kicked off the first DC Fandom. And that is Wonder Woman 1984. And the fact that it might be delayed once again, this according to Deadline, and of course, I recorded this very, very early on Friday, September the 11th. So if something changes in this story between now and then, then of course, I'll update you at down on nerdypodcast.com. But for now, Deadline is reporting that Warner Brothers is considering once again moving Wonder Woman 1984 to a later date because of the situations with theaters and the coronavirus pandemic and everything along those lines. Now, they're not thinking about pushing it too far in the future. According to the story, it looks like they're looking to maybe either push it to November or December. And if that happens, that could push the Dune movie, which, of course, I'll talk about here in a minute as well, to 2021. Here's the deal. And one thing that really frustrates me about this whole thing. I understand delaying the movie. Okay. I'm not saying, I'm not even saying don't delay it. Okay. Not saying that at all. What I am saying is that you're delaying this. It's like death by a thousand cuts. Right. So you move it a couple months here, a couple months there, a couple months here, a couple months there. And let's be honest. If you move it to November, here we are in the beginning of September, almost halfway through September, by the way. Here we are halfway through September, and sure, things are slowly but surely getting better, right? Things are starting to open up a little bit more. Whether or not you think they should is not the debate in this particular topic, by the way, so we're not going to get into that at all. But things are starting to open up a little bit more, and you think that maybe things will get back to some sort of semblance of normal, right? But you still have theaters operating at very limited capacity. You've got the New York and Los Angeles markets that really aren't open yet, and I'll get to that here in a minute as well. And you've got Tenet, which was just released from Warner Brothers a couple of weeks ago, or maybe not even two weeks ago, depending on when you're listening to this. And sure, it raked in, you know, a big chunk of money domestic. I mean, uh, overseas. But when you say overseas, by the way, it's the difference between talking about what a movie makes in one country here in the United States and all of the international market. You're talking about Asia, Europe, things like that. So you're comparing one country to multiple continents. Okay. So it makes over a hundred million dollars overseas. That's great. Domestically, I think it made somewhere around 20 million in its first weekend. And by the way, under the circumstances, that's damn good. Let's just put that out there right now. Very good job. But Warner Brothers has to see that and go, we can't have this happen with Wonder Woman. You figured that under normal circumstances, if there was no coronavirus pandemic, and I know that's hard to kind of fathom right now, if that wasn't going on and we had a normal release schedule for these movies, I think Tenet would have still done very, very well. I think it would have made a boatload of money in its first weekend, probably had a big drop-off in the second weekend. But you're looking at a Wonder Woman movie that the first movie was wildly popular and very, very critically accepted by both fans and the press. Here's the thing, though. Now you've got your sequel where you're going to be introducing another major villain character. You've got one of your most beloved characters of the past couple years in, in Gal Gadot's Wonder Woman. You've got Cheetah coming into the mix. You've got Maxwell Lord. You've got Chris Pine Street, Steve Trevor coming back. Everything working for you. And then you have this happen. Okay. But do we really think that pushing this to November is going to change things enough for them to want to release this movie in theaters or December? When do you think you're going to feel comfortable going back to a movie theater, even when they have more capacity and is having more capacity going to make it even less likely that you would go to a movie theater. Maybe you've already gone to a movie since since theaters have opened back up where you are. And I don't fault you for that either, by the way. you know, Live the light, your, your life the way you want to, and I'm not going to judge anybody for that. But here's the thing. As far as getting these major blockbuster movies released, I don't see how you th- even fathom doing that in 2020 and think you're going to make the money that the movie should make. And I get it. What they said, remember what they said at DC fandom to kick things off in August. They said, this is a movie we want people to see in theaters. And what Warner Brothers, I think needs to do is one of two things. If you really don't think things are going to open up anytime soon, as far as normal opening goes, you need to push this thing as far into 2021 as you can just like they did, just like other studios did, with like with Top Gun and with Jurassic World Dominion, things like that. You need to shove this thing to 2021, and just if you really, really, really must have this in theaters, that's what that's what you need to do. If you keep moving it month by month by month by month, not only is that frustrating for fans because you're giving them hope that this, that this movie is actually going to come out, you're only going to continue the conversation about whether or not this should be released at home, okay? Or what they need to do is, quite frankly, just release the thing. I mean, just just do it. I mean, don't don't move the date, either put it out in the theaters like you're going to, or just release the thing on digital as much as you don't want to. You gotta let that idea go at some point, don't you? Yeah, I think you do. or you do the Bill and Ted method where you release it in theaters and digital on demand the same exact day and damn the consequences for the theatrical window. Because think about it. One of the things that affected the box office numbers for Bill and Ted and some other movies was the fact that AMC, when they opened back up, did that big celebration where they're like, okay, we're going to sell 15 cent movie tickets across the board, right? As far as I know, that's what they did because I, I haven't set foot even close to a movie theater in forever. So... Obviously, that's going to affect the bottom line of your new release. So AMC can't have it both ways, by the way. They can't get upset at what Universal did in shortening the, or anybody else, shortening the theatrical window for the movies and releasing them on digital HD and then turn around and charge 15 cent admission for new movies who are trying to make their money in the theaters and weren't able to Because AMC did what, you know, the right thing for their marketing too, by the way, and for moviegoers that wanted to go to movies making it cheap for them. I'm not saying they did the wrong thing. What I'm saying is, is that you can't be mad at movie studios for what they did and then turn around and charge 15 cents for a ticket that would normally cost 10 bucks. And then say to your, say to your, the the studios, oh, you know, sorry, we had to do, you know, we wanted to do this fun promotion. No, 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 no. You can't have it both ways. So both are equally right or both are equally wrong. But everything, both, both instances, I think benefit us, the movie watching public. Okay. So that's where I'm going with that. But this Wonder Woman movie thing kind of baffles me that they keep moving it in in these short little windows. And it affects other movies too, by the way. Like I said, the Dune movie could be pushed to 2021 because of all this. And Dune's supposed to be coming out in December. I believe it's December 18th of this year. So why not just leave... If you're going to move Wonder Woman, why not just leave Dune where it is for now and let Wonder Woman come out in 2021? Why wouldn't you just move it past Dune? if you were going to do it that way, instead of shifting multiple movies, which is what you're going to end up doing. Like Marvel did that not too long ago with Marvel studios movies because of the pandemic and you have to move several movies, but that's part part of that's the whole, it's all connected thing. And then part of that is just, that's the way that they decided that they wanted to do things. I just think that there's a lot that's, not right about this situation. I wish it was a little bit better. Quite frankly, if I'm wishing things, I'm wishing that we weren't dealing with this pandemic at all for a lot of reasons, but these are the cards that were dealt and at some point Warner Brothers is going to have to decide which hand they're going to play. And you can only delay a movie but for so long. But look at what the look at what the Sony boss had to say recently in, in an interview with The Rap and what they what they said was Quite frankly, that they, that, that what's, and I'm going to butcher this last name, by the way, you have Sony pictures, entertainment chair, Tony vinciera who said, and I quote, what we won't do is make the mistake of putting a very, very expensive $200 million movie out in markets. Unless we're sure that theaters are open and operating at significant capacity, end quote. Now. What's the definition of significant capacity? I mean, that's a that that's a judgment call, right? But that's kind of the way you've got to think about it, right? Especially for a movie, and going back to Warner Brothers, like Wonder Woman. Is this the chance you really want to take just because you are so dead set on making sure you get this movie in the theater? And again, if you want to do a dual release, I don't see the problem with that necessarily. And and I think that the movie the movie would make a boatload of money on video on demand. I really really do. I think it would make a ton of money. And here's the other thing. If what you're waiting for is the New York and Los Angeles markets to open, what does that say about your business model in general? And I'm talking about all movie theater studios, okay? What does it say that you rely that heavily on New York and Los Angeles. Major markets, I get that. I'm not saying that they're not. But what does it say about your business model that you are relying that heavily on two markets being open to be able to make money? That doesn't say a whole lot to me. To me, that is scary as hell. The fact that you're saying that without New York and Los Angeles, you might as well not even bother. That's kind of, and I'm not, again, not putting words in anybody's mouth, but that is the perception that we've been given. The fact that, oh, well, you know, if New York and Los Angeles aren't open, well, then what's the point? We're not going to make any money. You know, you can't just market to these two large markets. You've got to have a national strategy, you would think, right? And it seems like they either don't or didn't think this would be an issue. And nobody, you can't predict something like this long term, right? You can't know that a pandemic like this is going to hit and theaters are going to shut down and all hell's going to break loose. I, you got to understand that. But think about the ripple effects of this. If movies aren't making money, the movies that are going to be made after that are going to have to be made for less money. And there's a snowball effect there that I didn't even want to think about right now, okay? So... Just keep that in mind as these decisions start to get made. And I'm not saying there's that, that I have the right answer. I'm not saying that I have the wrong answer. I'm saying that it this is a very difficult situation, but it, it, it comes a point where you need to cut your losses one way or the other and decide maybe it's best if we just put this thing out and see where things go. Because, I mean, I don't know about you, but I don't see normal... I don't see that light at the end of the tunnel. I don't know where normal is going to end up in all of this. So that that's something that they, at some point, they need to open their eyes and strongly consider. Well, I think we definitely talked enough about that. Let's talk about the other major story this week, and that is that The Walking Dead will be ending after season 11. Now, you know, the gasps came out all over the place, but then then you, you get deeper into this press release from AMC, And you see that this final season is going to run for two years and it has 30 episodes left. Okay, that's a lot. And, you know, I'm sure that filming difficulties due to COVID are are contributing to the fact that they're going to stretch that thing out. But clearly they are going to make this a very long farewell tour. But don't even call it a farewell tour. It's not so long. It's I'll see you later because AMC also announced plans. Beyond this 11th season. And this should make some Walking Dead fans very happy. And the fact that they're going to get a spin off series is going to focus on Daryl Dixon and Carrie Carol Peltier, which is going to be coming in 2023. Of course, that is an untitled spin off at this point. And fans seem to be very excited about that. Here's the one that's really interesting, though. And that's another series called Tales of the Walking Dead. And it's going to be an anthology series it's going to follow some existing characters some new characters as well maybe you get episodes talking about backstories there's going to be some standalone tales and it's really going to open up and expand the universe and to me that is the interesting series i'm not saying that i don't want to see daryl and carol by the way think about that you really that's that those are the characters you chose so it's the daryl and carol show it just seems very old fashioned to me. I don't know why the little jingle thing just popped into my head, but that was the first thing I thought of when I saw that because I'm a weirdo and that's, you know, kind of how I how I roll. But you know, you've still got very familiar names that are involved with this. A- Angela Kang is going to be the showrunner for this new spin-off series. Scott Gimple is still very much in the mix and it's kind of putting together this tales from the Walking Dead anthology series and there was really no updates on anything else either by the way there was no real updates on any of the movies that they were talked about before like the the one of the movies that was supposed to center around Rick Grimes right where there's no updates on any of those you know we've got World Beyond that's still coming you've still got Fear, Fear the Walking Dead that's going there's no updates on whether or not you know Fear the Walking Dead would be ending anytime soon but quite frankly it, it's time For the main Walking Dead series to end. I mean, it's hard to keep anything exciting and interesting after 11 seasons, right? It's really, really more difficult than you might think. And I think that they've done a spectacular job up to this point. You know, obviously some major misses along the way. And I know Walking Dead fans will agree. But I think that, you know, to be able to put anything on for 11 seasons and do well, that's commendable in and of itself. But at the same time, it's, t- it's time to go. It's time to shift the focus to something else. It's time to try and tell a new story. So even though they're not going away entirely, what they're doing is saying, look, we're shutting this down and we're going to focus on this. It's almost like you're breaking it up into smaller parts and putting a more focal point on a smaller group of characters. And I think that that's, that might be a key strategy and be able to keep this franchise going altogether because again you know there's a staleness to it at this point there's certain characters like Negan that maybe didn't pan out the way that they thought they were going to long term and it's just time to say goodbye to this flagship series and you know there's there's honor in the series that that that, that started the whole thing right and you're always going to look back on those great moments but You know, Quite frankly, it's time to go. Now, it's going to take a long time for them to go, but it's definitely time to go. I think this is the right decision, and I really think that these two new series, especially the anthology series, could breathe new life into the Walking Dead universe on television. I know that people are still talking about the Dune movie trailer that came out, and the movie is, of course, still scheduled for, as of right now, December 18th of 2020 you know there's an all-star cast that's involved in this and if you watch the trailer i'm not going to compare it to the 1984 dune dune movie either i don't think that there's much point in doing that you're going to compare a movie to another movie that's being put out like 36 years later that doesn't really make a whole lot of sense for a lot of reasons but it's almost like if star wars and game of thrones had a baby right and then you throw in maybe a little bit of like a almost like a like a tremors type of situation right you get what this dune movie looks like because it's, it seems like there's a lot of politics going on right but you've got that you've got just enough sci-fi to to make it feel like a sci-fi movie and then you you know you hear come the ships and everything like that and it's like oh okay yeah this is a sci-fi movie and then you get the sandworm right there's been a lot of different reactions to the sandworm. Not even going to bring up one of them by the way that was posted by David Lynch on social media. If hey, if that's your opinion more power to you. I'm not I'm not saying that you're wrong. I'm just not even going to talk about it cuz I I don't want to picture it again, quite frankly. I thought it looked okay. I thought it looked pretty good. Actually, I think that it, it was you know, they they made it huge and menacing and you know, you saved it for the end of the trailer, which I love to give the trailer that nice punch that you like to have in a first trailer. But again, it's a first trailer. We don't learn a ton about what's going on other than there's a lot of politicking going on. That seems like there's a lot to do de- that there's a lot to deal with on multiple planets and multiple settings, and then you have your central characters that are involved as well. I'm interested. I'm absolutely interested and where this is going to go cast alone to me is one of the reasons that you want to check this out. And this is Dune's chance to finally shine in a post-Star Wars world, right? I mean, obviously, there's still Star Wars things going on, but you feel like Dune got screwed by Star Wars in its original run in 1984 when it tried to come out. And now it's like, okay, Star Wars has quote-unquote ended, right? So now it's our time to shine. Maybe we can finally... Get that attention that we thought we were going to get all those years ago. And I think that it really does have a chance of doing that. I would like to see more trailers though before I can go ahead and say that for sure. Really quickly, I wanted to mention this because I thought it was interesting, and that is that a new Jack Reacher series is coming to Amazon Prime Video. And no, Tom Cruise is not going to be playing Jack Reacher this time. It's actually the character's going to be played by Familiar Face from Titans, actually, and that's Alan Richson, who you might know as Hawk from Titans, who is going to play Jack Reacher. Now, if you know anything about the Lee Child books for Jack Reacher, then you know that he was a little bit more of a formidable looking character than you might get from Tom Cruise, who's not the tallest dude and not the most buff dude in the world. Now, I'm not saying that Tom Cruise did a bad job either. Don't don't catch me wrong on that. What I'm saying is, is that the idea is that Alan Richen is going to look the part a little bit more of what the creator of the character had in their mind when they were presenting this in the book form. But speaking of the books, by the way, if you are a fan of the books, it looks like this first season of the series is going to be based on an adaptation of Killing Floor. So if you're a fan of the books, that is what you can expect from this series. And Nick Santora is going to be the showrunner for the series, which is going to be produced from Skydance and Paramount Television Studios. And if you want to make a successful TV adaptation of something that was a novel and then became a movie and now is becoming a TV series, Amazon's the home for that. They did it with Jack Ryan very successfully. They're going to try to do it with Lord of the Rings. They've done it with other shows. They're going to try and do it with Wheel of Time as well. They've had success doing this in the past. So going to Amazon for something like this seems like a smart move to me and I, and I think it's going to be very interesting to see how what kind of a character gets written for Alan Richton. But I mean if you look at him, if you look at the pictures from Titans, you you kind of get the Jack Reacher vibe from him. Don't you? Or at least I do and he and quite frankly, if you if you can't hear Jack Reacher not picture Tom Cruise, he's Tom Cruise-esque in his looks, right? He's just taller and a little bit more buff than Tom Cruise is, right? Especially at Tom Cruise's age now. So you can't really blame him. But at the same time, it just feels like he fits the mold of the character better. And that's not always important, but that could add a different dimension to this series and make it feel different from the movies enough that you can kind of not compare the two because that's, you know, everybody likes to do that, right? Well, That's not how they did it in the movie. Well, that's because that's not what they're going for. They're trying to do something different. They're not trying to redo the movie into a TV series. You know, that's not what they're going for. They're going for something different. So this should provide that separation that I think that we kind of need. It's kind of like what they tried to do on USA with Treadstone, which was based in the Jason Bourne universe, but they weren't quite able to pull it off. I think Amazon has a much better chance to pull this off with a Jack Reacher series. Coming up. That's going to do it for this week's edition of the Down and Nerdy podcast. And quite frankly, you know, I had a great time just kind of chatting about, you know, and going back, you know, way in the days when we didn't do guests and just, you know, taking a little bit deeper dive into some of these stories and other things. So thank you so much for your support and just amazing for you guys for checking the show out without having a guest on it. I really do appreciate that. If you want more from the show, go to downandnerdypodcast.com. There are plenty of interviews there. If you maybe missed one, this would be a good week to go back and listen to those. Also follow along on social media at downandnerdy757 on Twitter and on Instagram and at downandnerdy on Facebook. Remember, you never have to apologize for being a nerd, so let your fan flag fly and be good to your fellow nerds.